Welcome to the MyPillow 2.0 commercial. Miss Makeup. Well, you look good. And action. You're sleeping even better. We've got the best pillow ever. My Pillow 2.0. He's a great neighbor, huh? Good. Cut. We got it. Welcome to the set of the My Pillow 2.0, the most amazing pillow in history. That new technology is still the My Pillow's patented fill, and now we have new technology we didn't have back when I invented My Pillow. That's going to help you sleep. It's absolutely amazing, and you're the first ones that can check it out. Go to MyPillow.com, use the promo code on your screen, and we brought back the buy one get one free. For the best night's sleep in the whole wide world, visit MyPillow.com. It is necessary to investigate before legislating. But the line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one. The investigators tell us it seems the suspect was going to pass them, then turned and fired. Christine, Laura, what you're seeing behind me is one of multiple locations. Arise to support the impeachment of President Donald J. Trump. And I'm about to talk to him about allegations that he was involved with prostitutes in Moscow. Welcome back to Information Operation. We've got a special guest with us today. Darren Beatty is a former speechwriter for President Trump, and he is the head of Revolver.News and has been on top uh, more than any other media outlet on the January 6th situation. And he's got a new book out, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, welcome to the show, Darren. Great to be here. Thank you. So uh, before we get started, uh, I know our audience is very interested in the Jan 6 situation, and you have been the lead uh, in reporting on all that and digging and outing a lot of the informants that were on the ground. Can you give us an overview of just what's happening across the, from a 30,000 foot level on the on this itself? Absolutely. Well, look, from the 30,000 foot level, we have to look at what the agenda is behind the regime pushing the false insurrection narrative of January 6th. The agenda is to facilitate this dangerous trend of weaponizing our own national security state domestically in order not to combat foreign threats, but to suppress domestic dissent against what's increasingly a corrupt, clownish, and illegitimate regime. The idea that January 6th was an insurrection some, including Biden, have even compared it to 9-11, therefore casting over half of the country that object to Biden, that may be sympathetic to some things Trump said, casting all of these people as de facto domestic terrorists in the mold of ISIS or Al-Qaeda. That's the state that our country is in, and those are the stakes for getting to the bottom of January 6th, getting to the truth of January 6th. And the truth of January 6th is that it was not an insurrection. It's what I call a fedsurrection. Mm -hmm. What do I mean by that? I don't mean that everybody who attended was a card-carrying member of the FBI. What I mean is that had it not been for a handful 
of critical actors who played critical roles on that day, the preconditions would not have been set for the rally to turn into a riot. And furthermore, those handful of critical actors not only likely connected to the federal government, they are manifestly protected by the federal government. And it's very bizarre to see, just to use one of the most infamous ones that Revolver.News has helped to make a household name, Ray Epps. Mm -hmm. It's very bizarre to see somebody like Ray Epps, who's the only person caught on camera as early as January 5th, telling people to go into the Capitol, go into the Capitol. He skips Trump's speech to be pre-positioned right at that initial breach site whispering into people's ear right before they break down the barricades. It's very weird that this individual, who incidentally was one of the first 20 people put on the FBI's most wanted list for January 6th, the FBI conveniently scrubbed him off the day after Revolver.News published our first piece exploring the possibility of federal involvement. But it's very weird that to this day, Ray Epps, the only January 6th participant about whom New York Times has written a fully dedicated puff piece. He's the only January 6th participant about whom crybaby Adam Kinsinger, who is many people know he spends more time crawling on all fours than he does walking on two feet. They call him crybaby Kinsinger, who's never seen a Trump supporter that he didn't want to see rotting in prison for under 50 years. All of a sudden, it comes out in the January 6th transcript that crybaby crawling on all fours Kinsinger was actually acting as a more vigorous defender of Ray Epps than Epps' own lawyer, who, by the way, was a nine-year veteran of the FBI Phoenix field office. And meanwhile, you hear all of these terrible stories about patriots and Trump supporters and January 6th participants who have had the book thrown at them, who have had their lives destroyed, some of whom remain in prison under unimaginably horrific conditions, solitary confinement, brutalization, and so forth, for relatively trivial things. And meanwhile, you have Ray Epps, not only has not been charged, not been prosecuted, but he's positively celebrated by the same witch hunters who want to throw everyone else in prison for trivial things. So I think when you put the whole picture together, it's pretty clear it was a common sense thing that we all know is that January 6th was not an insurrection. It was a Fedsurrection. And the false story of January 6th, the false narrative is being weaponized in order to facilitate national security states war against the american people that's why it's dangerous and that's why it's important well obviously it's a technique because you saw the same thing in brazil with the storming of the parliament there the government buildings and then rounding up the same putting them in jail abusing them and it's had an effect because a lot of people didn't want to go to arizona maricopa county maricopa county after uh you know carrie lake's uh pushback against the election there because of January 6th. So there, there's a purpose for it, right? I mean, to prevent people from rising up and, and protesting, I think. Well, absolutely. I mean, there are multiple purposes. You know, there's the most specific purpose, which we saw come out in the committee and the spectacle of these televised hearings, which was the more narrowly specific purpose of kneecapping 
and neutralizing Trump's future political prospects. That was one. Then there's the broader uh, agenda of basically casting all Trump supporters, conservatives, people who object to the Biden regime as domestic terrorists. And then within that, you're absolutely right. There's a particular kind of chilling effect when it comes to um, public organization and public yeah. activism. And it's a chilling effect for good reason. And, you know, unfortunately, people need to be in touch with reality. The reality is, in particular, when it comes to these kind of militia style groups, these groups are so heavily infiltrated by the yeah. government that people just need to understand that. Like it came out in the in the course of these Oath Keepers trials that the number two person at the Oath Keepers was an FBI informant. <laughs> the head of the Proud Boys had a history of being an FBI informant. I mean, you're it, I mean, whatever one thinks about, you know, the, the principle of a, a militia generally, these days, you're just, you might, if you want to go to the militia, join, join the FBI instead, because you're going to be around <laughs> your, the same colleagues anyway. It's, yeah, no kidding. It, it's, it's just ridiculous. And, you know, I think the average American still has no appreciation for the extent to which the national security state has injected itself into the domestic political affairs of this country. And I think a lot of people, again, deep in their bones, people get riled up about the bread and circuses of the media cycle. It's a cathartic experience. We get up in arms about the latest fake outrage and the fake promises and everything else. People get wrapped up in it. I know I'm in the news business. I know how people yeah. respond to information. But deep down on some level, everybody knows that it's fake. Everybody knows that the latest promises won't amount to anything. And I'm telling you, the reason that that is, one of the biggest reasons that that is the chief bottleneck to real political progress in the United States is that the national security state has gone rogue. It is the chief bottleneck to political progress. And unless and until there's some reorientation whereby the national security state is brought into its proper role in our system and it's brought to heal, frankly. Our politics will remain, in essence, fundamentally fake and performative. So you yeah. get wrapped up in the next outrage and send your money to whatever the latest, you know, dumb thing is. You could we can even, you know stare up in the sky at indignation about, you know, the Chinese balloon. <laughs> but we know it's fake and stupid. Like deep yeah. down, we all know it's fake and stupid. Oh, look at what, look at what, you know, AOC said. Look at AOC's dress. Look at, you know, a bunch of fat degenerates, you know, dressing like Satan in a Grammys performance. We all know that it's fake and stupid. It's a distraction. So, so do, you, do you have any hope in Congress with the weird? Nothing real. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I completely agree. I mean, it's obvious. But do you have any hope in uh, in the new con new Congress in the House? Well, you know, hope is an interesting thing. I, I was just. I, I was just doing a kind of a, a lecture on Twitter spaces on um, 
and actually the Platonic Dialogue, the Symposium. In the course of the conversation, the, um, the Greek myth came up of the story of Prometheus who stole fire from the Olympian gods and his punishment, the gods gave him naturally a woman called Pandora, hence Pandora's box. Pandora means yeah. gift, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Greek. And Pandora opens up the box and the box contains all of the evils in the world, all of the miseries in the world. And by keeping those in the box, it's protecting humanity. But of course, Pandora being a curious and insolent woman, she has to open up the box. So she opens up the box and all of the miseries of the human condition fly out and she closes the box just in time to keep hope inside. <laughs> now, the interesting thing, though, is that, OK, yeah, we still have hope. But what's interesting about that is that the box is supposed to have all of the evils and miseries. So the suggestion here is that hope is not unambiguously a positive thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a double-edged sword. It has yeah. an ambiguity to it. So when you ask, you know, do I have hope about it? I mean, again, that's sort of a lofty answer for 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 the question, but um, hope has to be kind of aligned with realistic expectations. I do think that there are a lot of good people in Congress who are competent and effective and are working against very difficult odds. You know, I think Matt Gates has done a tremendous job. Mm -hmm. I, have a, I have a tremendous respect for Thomas Massey. Um, there are a handful, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene. There, mm -hmm. there are real warriors in there, but, you know, they're, they can only do so much. And so people complain. They say, well, this is just a PR exercise. These hearings won't get anywhere. And, you know, that could be, you know, more or less true. But, you know, we're at the stage where even the PR exercise, even making public these things, making them a more prominent feature of our awareness and public discourse, I think is not nothing. Yeah. And it could be a step towards something more meaningful in the future. But obviously, you know, we have to manage expectations. And, you know, given the way that, um, you know, the, the, the government is right now, it's like we just we just have, you know, Congress. There's not a whole of a lot you can do. Yeah. You know, you, you know, even it's not like the GOP is full of champions anyway, but <laughs> even even discounting that we only have Congress. So, you know, we can't like, you know, we can if they want, they could say, oh, prosecute this guy. Do you think in a million years that Biden's Department of Justice is going to prosecute anybody because yeah. a handful of, you know, <laughs> you know, the 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 hardcore Republicans in Congress advise them to? I mean. So it's a P, it's a PR exercise, but I don't say that um, uh, with the condescension uh, um, uh, that it might seem. Because I, you know, I'm in the news business. Mm -hmm. All I do is make things public, and our reporting on January six is not. Led, it's not led to like you know Ray Epps, you know, being you know, but it's. It's shaped the national conversation in a positive direction that's far closer to the truth yes. than we would be had we not bothered to do it at all. So completely agree. Yeah. So I want to talk to you about the media in a minute, but let's talk about the book. It's called The January 6th Report, the report of the Select Committee to Investigate the Jan 6th Attack on the United States Capitol with a Ford 
by Darren Beatty. Tell us about your Ford, because there's several versions of this book, right? Absolutely. So the January 6th committee, which is this public committee that, you know, is ostensibly, well, formally, it's bipartisan. But what that really means is it was comprised of Democrats who hate Trump and Trump supporters and mm -hmm. Republicans who hate Trump and Trump supporters even more. I mean, in this case, it was the aforementioned crybaby Kinsinger still on all fours and and Liz Cheney, you know, we all know the scion of one of the most disgusting war criminals our country's ever produced. So not exactly, you know, top top shelf individuals here. Right. But, um, so multiple news organizations and uh, publishing houses have put forth this report, which is a public document. But what they've done is they've commissioned journalists and experts and other people to write different introductions to it. And to their great credit, the folks at Skyhorse Publishing House, a very serious publishing house, their subsidiary, Simon & Schuster. Yeah. And they reached out to me and they say, look, everybody is doing the same old slop, the same old version that you're going to hear on CNN that everyone knows in their bones is false. We're going to take a chance on the truth and actually say, look, why don't you write the introduction to this? Why don't you write the one-stop shop summary for people who have the stomach to get to the bottom of what committee actually did. Not just a full and comprehensive and definitive takedown of the committee itself, which I do, but more importantly, an exploration of the dark and dirty and deeply disturbing questions that the committee was set up specifically to obfuscate and distract from. And that's what we do in this introduction. So if people are interested in the one-stop shop, um, it's a lot, it's a nice, you know, crisp, efficient introduction. It's about 50, 60 pages. So you got everything you need, Ray Epps, and 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 it gets darker from there. So that's the January 6th committee report, Skyhorse version with an introduction by Darren Beatty. And if people want the full story. Again, it all started at revolver.news. We have um, the January 6th series. If people go to the site revolver.news, there are two columns that say the series, and you go there, you can start wherever you want. But really, the true bombshell classic that sees the national imagination was the two part series on Ray Epps. Yeah. Uh, because that, you know, I'd there was, like there was no think, there was no hiding that it was so I, obvious. Yeah, I'd like to think that you know I'm a good writer. The exposition yeah. is good. The analysis is good. But other than that, forget about all that. What makes the piece is the video. Mm -hmm. We have comprehensive video documentation of Epps and characters that are even more egregious than Epps that the government hasn't even identified. They haven't even bothered to identify. So that's at revolver.news. I say, there, you know, if people are skeptical of this Fetzerection thesis, take the challenge. Go to revolver.news. Just watch the video, read the Ray Epps part two thing. Nobody can look you in the eye after that and say that these people were authentic actors. Yeah. It's very clear what's going on. And a lot of people are offended and scandalized by that reality. And they don't understand this isn't just like a new thing. This is how these people have operated for a long, long time. Yeah. And the thing is, like Merrick Garland, it's not his first rodeo. 
Merrick Garland goes all the way back to the 90s. He was working for the Clinton administration, the Department of Justice. He had the quote unquote domestic terrorism portfolio. And he was one of the mop up men, one of the janitors for the whole Oklahoma City fiasco, which again, I hate to tell you, it's, it's, you know, I don't want to get into it too much. It's really dark, but it's not exactly what people think. So, yeah, there's a lot of that in our recent history, I think, of not exactly what people think. Yeah. Exactly. So let's talk about that real last question. Um, you know, I see I'm an ex Wall Street guy. I see just a hell of a lot of opportunity in the media space. I mean, you don't see where an industry literally destroys its customer base within a few period of, you know, short period of time intentionally. So I see. So we started a new media company. Tell me about Revolver and what got you motivated to, to go do that effort. Well, that's a very interesting thing. And perhaps we should. Um... You know, we should talk off the air. I encourage you, you know, send me a text or something because I have sure. a lot of thoughts on that. Yeah. But my one kind of observation about the economics of the media is, I mean, first of all, the like this the the simplified econ one oh one heuristic of businesses succeed by giving customers what they want. I think that's largely false or just a small part of the truth at the highest levels of 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 business it's it's perhaps true on the scale of like the neighborhood lemonade stand you know yeah you got lemonade that's better than the one down the corner obviously people go there but once you get into the high stakes corporate world it's like it's analogous to china you know you don't operate at the highest levels of business or any domain in China if you're not in some way fundamentally integrated into the party system ideologically. It's the same way in the United States, but it's just a different ideology. It's the woke ideology that dominates. And um, that's a real thing. And there are various reasons for that. But I think it's especially acute when it comes to the media, because, you know, the, what's most important about the media is that the media influences people and you might even go a step further and say the media creates people's reality sure they influence people on such a deep level that the that for a a, a, a large media company not like an upstart not like revolver news necessarily mm-hmm. but for something on the level of a news corp or a cnn yeah. or these mega media companies to be able to shape people's reality at that depth and at that scale, the influence over the population is always more valuable than the profit motive itself. And I think you can think of it in terms of, so in corporate structures, you know, sometimes there's the parent company and there's the subsidiary company. And you can look at a subsidiary company and say, geez, this is not generating a profit. What the hell's going on? But its existence makes sense to the extent that even if it doesn't generate a profit, it redounds to the net benefit of its parent company. And I think- Like like Twitter, which wasn't profitable, but- Right, and I I think- Exactly. And I think that's the right analogy to keep in mind when thinking about what truly drives the incentives of media at the highest level, is that there may not be a formal parent company all the time, although in some cases, you know, there is, like with Washington and Jeff Bezos. But (laughs) the parent company is effectively- the collection, the handful of key stakeholders in the regime. 
uh, whether it be the government, you know, the financials, all this, you, you mm -hmm. think of those, that's the parent company of media. And, and for the, the biggest media companies, their influence over people's reality at scale is always far more valuable than the profit, which is not to say that they don't want to make a profit, but they make a profit within those parameters, subject to the condition that at sure. the very least, they're not fundamentally threatening the parent company. And that's, again, a simplification, but I think it adds a degree of complexity that helps us to understand, for instance, why isn't everybody at Fox News copying Tucker Carlson when he's the most viewed guy ever? You know, that's that's the neighborhood lemonade stand version of thinking about it. But that's not really the full system that governs the incentive structure, the media. So um, I don't know, like the, I, I think, you know, when I when that occurred to me, it was and I and I've experienced it at the personal level, too, just in my own sort of you know, we've we've shaped the national conversation. We're punching well above our weight, but we're not News Corp, at least right. yet, yeah. right? But I remember, you know, we were at the height of our January 6th reporting, just absolutely killing it. One thing after another, getting tons of viewers. Everybody was like, wow, Revolver.News is the most amazing media upstart we've ever seen, startup. And I go on Tucker Carlson, most popular show on cable news, and Tucker is saying, you guys did an awesome job. This is some of the best reporting I've ever seen. And you'd think from a business perspective, wow, this is the pinnacle. This is great for business. I'm here on the number one show is praising our work. Like yeah. we made it. This is great. Guess what happened the next day? We get canceled from Google ads. Yeah, oh, yeah. So I'm, not, I'm right there with you, man. <laughs> right. So at the so at the and you know, this is not really like a sob story, it's just illustrating the principle I said at the height of our influence, it had a negative correlation on our ability to generate revenue. So it 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 just shows you that there's a there's a and you know, we're doing fine financially, but compared to the influence that we have on the public, there's no comparison. You yeah. know, to to have a comparable influence, we you know, we've had, you know, I've I've engaged in the thought experiment, how much would it be worth it for the FBI to pay us to just shut down? Mm. It would be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. But we're not making hundreds of millions of dollars. So that gives you a sense of like the influence versus the profit. And so I think, you know, a lot of these factors are relevant to just businesses generally. But when you get to businesses that are in the business of shaping people's reality and influencing. There's so many profound distortionary effects that, you know, the standard econ 101 analysis, which really has no place outside of, you know, the, uh, the University of Chicago classrooms or so forth, um, that always has its limitations is especially limited when it comes to giving an accurate characterization of the media business and the influence and the incentive structures that govern it. Sure. Well, the whole uh, censoring and direct ads, uh, you know, opportunity, I think is another thing we should talk about offline sometime. Great. Uh, that, that's a huge opportunity. Thank you for coming on, Darren. I know you got to run. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. All right.